crime is often driven by other factors than just you're a horrible human being, that you are malicious and want to harm people. You can look around our culture and see people who are struggling with substances anywhere you go. And so drug courts came in on the idea, hey, instead of just punishing the behavior, let's figure out if we can help these people solve the issues that are bringing them here. Thank you for tuning in to the Finding Fire podcast this week. We had the opportunity to partner with Yellow Bike Coffee on a collaborative project, Yellow Bikes Hero Roasts. We were able to record six amazing episodes, and we know that these episodes are going to impact you just as much as they impacted us while recording. We'll be rolling these out back-to-back throughout the month of September. So stay tuned and enjoy. Hi there, I'm Shannon, the owner-operator of Yellow Bike Coffee. I am just super excited to share with you our very first roast that come off of our revolutionary bellwether. It's an all-electric, zero-carbon emission roasting machine. This is seriously the biggest advancement. It's a true game-changer in the specialty coffee industry. We've waited a long time to say that we now have an official Yellow Bike brand. We just chose to base these roasts from some amazing local heroes. It has been a year. And I've had the privilege to meet some new people along the way and to get to know some existing folks in a much more deeper and a profound way. So these four people that we picked, they're the subjects of our first four hero roasts. So I'm excited for you to hear and learn more about them and why they're our true heroes and why we all need their life message. Fired Up, that's our name for Sean Flurkey's roast profile, appropriately named, and you will figure out why really quick when listening to his podcast. So we used peaberry beans from the Nagali farm in Tanzania. This is a decades-old farm owned by a very sweet gal, Vera Myers, who we had the privilege of meeting and speaking with during this process. She's an engineer, and they have fine-tuned their process of cultivating top-quality beans. They're like on the rim of the cloud forest. It's amazing. So she, with her farm, also supports a local school and provides them with books and technology resources So we're roasting these pea berries on the dark and dangerous side. So you can pre-order Fired Up, yellowbike.coffee. Fulfillment is the last Friday of the month, and you can pick up in our shop, or we can ship it to you anywhere in the world. Yep, we're going to figure out how to do that, because why not? Our campaign of Make It Great, Donate 8, You Give and You Get, not only applies here, as we're going to donate 8% of Fired Up proceeds to the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation, because Sean is now the president of that foundation and attempting to do some great, great things. But because we buy beans from Vera, she in return supports her local primary school. So everybody, this is a double whammy impact on this one. During this episode, we sat down with Sean Florkey, former judge and new president of the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation. We sat down with Judge and we talked about his integral part in molding the DUI court and his passion to helping people rediscover and identify the factors that led them down the wrong path and his new journey, supporting the local community with the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation. Enjoy this episode. We sure did, and I know you're going to learn a lot. Thanks for listening. All right, so here we are with Mr. Sean Flurkey. Right. You don't have to call me judge anymore. That's awesome. (laughs) All right, so we're working on our project of our first series of Yellow Bike Coffees. Mm-hmm. And I called up Sean. I said, hey, I got an idea for you. Are you willing to jump in? And he was like, 
Rock on, let's do it, because you are a huge coffee nerd. Coffee and I go way back. Coffee and I go way back. So really what we want to do is just learn who you are. And wherever that leads and whatever conversation that is and wherever you want to start. But um, so really, where did you grow up? Grew up southern Wisconsin, down in the hill country. That's why we're in Duluth, because we lived in Owatonna for a while, and it was flat. And I realized I can't live in flat places. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, corn. So we moved to Duluth. When was it? 96. Went to, we got married, married in Madison. Law school, Minneapolis, U of M. Um, then we were in Owatonna for five years, and we've been in Duluth since 96. And we looked, we looked at Duluth and Rapid City, South Dakota, which if you've been there, you kind of get why we looked at those two. Um, but just love it up here. I feel like I'm a Duluth evangelist. You know, anywhere I go in the country, even Australia, I'm telling people, you got to come, you got to come, you know, and bike trails and skiing and the lakes and the Boundary Waters and Quetico and beer and, you know, just coffee 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 <laughs> Duluth coffee you know um, all the stuff going on just kind of resonates with me so it's cool so why law school you know I was born to argue um, you, you, do, you actually do know that um, I have you ever done uh, Gretchen Rubin does a um, it's a like personality types and there's um, uh, the upholder who's a rule follower and upholds there's the questioner who always questions things, won't do it unless, um, unless it makes sense to them. Um, there's an obliger who does whatever people want, and these are broad categories, but they tend to follow. And then there's the rebel, and I've always been the rebel. Um, and, I, and I get really pissed off um, at injustice and unfairness, and I've always loved the little guy. And so law school, I, I'm a fast thinker, I'm an arguer, I move on my feet, so law school was an easy given, yeah. Did you have law in your family at all? Because my dad's a police officer, retired okay. deputy. His dad was the chief of police in our small town. He died when my dad was 18, so I never met him. But yeah, so we had, we had law enforcement uh, background, um, no lawyers. Most of my family never went to college, you know, I farmers and and cops and stuff like that um but how the jump to a lawyer because like there's when there's law enforcement it's usually oh my dad's a cop i love that i love justice i'm going to go look out for the people so why did you think law instead of law enforcement please you know it's a good question shannon and i i i think what i was on was on a path to go to college i go to college um and then I start thinking about arguing, and that's what I want to do. I want to I want to get some tools, and I want to I want to get in the I, I would and you know there's when you say you're a lawyer there's there's a hundred different thousand different ways to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, but I was specifically a trial lawyer, and I was I was born a trial lawyer. I was born to fight and argue and convince people. Um, so it really it really worked for me. And you meet people who like go to law school and then think they should be a trial lawyer and they suck, you know? It's like, it's like painful and horrible and horrifying and stressful. I'm like, dude, do something else, you know? Review contracts for, for Cirrus and make a huge amount of money, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but me, I wanted to be in the courtroom. And then for me, it became about public service. My first job was as a prosecutor down in Owatonna. Um, and I, I burned out 
because uh, I couldn't separate. I would literally, I'd wake up at like one in the morning thinking about work. I'd just get up and go to work. Sarah didn't even know I was gone. I'd be gone two, three, four hours working. I'd be back home. I'd be out with the cops, out with the probation officers. I was, I was just, I had no boundaries. Um, but that got me into public service. Um, so litigation and public service became the themes. And came up here and worked for a private firm for 14 months and seven days and didn't like give or take. that. <laughs> give or take nothing. <laughs> um, so then I went to the county attorney's office here doing civil litigation for them, which is actually a ton of fun. Nobody sees that stuff. Nobody understands that stuff. All we see is lawyer, prosecution, defense, criminal stuff. Um, but civil litigation is advocacy but it, it can be so broad and you're doing so many different things and working for st louis county we were self-insured so we litigated everything i mean i defended law enforcement nursing homes um train accidents car accidents just all this kind of different stuff um so it combined ongoing public service and meaning with kind of my skill set so what led into the judge the, the judge, so judge is perceived as kind of a natural next step for some lawyers, especially courtroom lawyers. Um, so there was that. Uh, but it also looked to me, and I, I didn't, at that point, I really didn't understand all it would be, but it looked like a better platform for public service. Um, and so it came open and I applied and Ding, ding, I got in. I was 39 then, so spent 16 years doing that. But it was, it was, it was the idea of public service that, that really drew me. So we, we talked to Zach Walters and found out that he was like the first trial um, test subject you drug know, to court, see, yeah. yeah, to see if this drug Crash court test thing, dummy, yeah. yeah, right, right, yeah. to kind of see if this would maybe be a thing or work, yeah. whatever. Um, and but you were not involved at that time, right? So where where in in the evolution of the creation of drug court, or did you come involved with that, and what did that? Why did you do that? What did that mean to you? Yeah, so drug court started in Miami Dade County thirty some years ago. Janet Reno was the prosecutor in that court way, way back. These guys don't know who Janet Reno was. Do you remember yeah. Janet Reno? Yeah. Wait, no. I'm too young. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Liar! <laughs> but it was the idea, and it remains the idea, that crime is often driven by other factors than just you're a horrible human being, that you are malicious and want to harm people. And you can look around our culture and see people who are struggling with substances anywhere you go. And so drug courts came in on the idea, hey, instead of just punishing the behavior, let's figure out if we can help these people solve the issues that are bringing them here, right? Adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs study, we could talk about that for days. Adverse childhood experiences and childhood trauma cause downstream problems. Uh, you die faster, heart disease, et cetera. And you're much more likely to be um, suicidal and have problems with substances. That is not to say that every person who has problems with substances had childhood trauma. Don't ever, ever, ever think that. But we know that the, the representation of people with adverse childhood trauma 
is at least four times as high as our, in our criminal population as in our walking around population. Um, hurt people hurt people. So drug courts came around the idea, let's try and fix this. Let's get you treatment. Let's get you housing. It's really hard to be sober and, and um, abstinent if you're living in your, in your truck down by the river. It's really hard if you're in a domestic violence contact context. It's really hard if you're, you know, there's a lot of factors that can come into addiction and those behaviors. So drug court came around those ideas and it's proven wildly successful. It's the best and most measured criminal justice intervention in our country's history. And it works. And you can love it because it's good for people and it brings people life and it renews them and brings families together. Or you can love it because it's way cheaper than throwing somebody in a damn cage. So either side of the aisle loves drug courts. Mm -hmm. When I started 16 years ago and some change, um, drug court had just started but everything we else, else we were doing was just doing the same thing again and again, and lots of people would wonder why it wasn't working. I'm like, dude, we need more tools. Um, so I found it. Drug court was going, um, and, and they were doing fine, so I made a, a DWI court. Turns out St. Louis County is one of the most deadly counties in the state for uh, drunk driving. Right, and highest BAC at point of arrest, huge issues. So we took the drug court model, put it into the DWI model. So we started with felony DWIs. You gotta take high risk, high need people, and you intervene. Um, and that became the work. And it's proven wildly successful, and we've saved a ton of lives. So you created the model, you created the DWI I court. built the DWI court, yeah. Just started looking for models, saw the DWI, or, or the drug court model, and we put it on DWIs. Has that spread? Oh, it's all over, yeah. Yeah, and we weren't the first ones. Um, I don't even know who the first DWI court was, um, but we were one of the first ones in the state, and it spread all over the place. I mean, I've taught, I've taught professionals around the country and around the world on, on DWI courts. A super successful intervention. And you, again, it saves money and you get to see people get their lives back. So for people who are going to listen to this and don't necessarily know what drug court or DWI court, can you give a little synopsis of like what would land somebody there and what they would expect out of it? Yeah, so, so early days, one of the problems, so you got to take the pe right people and do the right things. Um, and the right people has been hard for people because we all want to take the easy people. Back in the day, people would take the easy people. First timers, they, you know, Shannon, if I threw you in jail for two days, you would quit whatever I told you to quit because you got a lot to lose. You got a life, you got stuff happening. If you take the easy people, you're, you're wasting your money and you can make them worse. That's what the research shows. You got to take the people who have repeatedly violated the law are at high risk to reoffend and who have substance problems. And we can test that. We get them an assessment and you test it. So you gotta take the scary people. You gotta have the courage to take the scary people. And the research has shown over the years that your best outcomes are with the people who've done it again and again and again. So you take the scary people, which is, I told you, I like the underdog. I like, that's who I love to be with, right? Um, and then you do the right things. And so you have a team of professionals that works together to try and solve those issues. One, 
get you to treatment, hold you to treatment, follow through with treatment, right-sizing treatment, and then anything else that goes into that. Therapy, grief, job skills, education, you name it. Getting people, we've got, our core got people new teeth all the time. Uh, meth had destroyed teeth, we're getting you new teeth. It's really hard to get a job in our culture if you don't have teeth, right? So, so when I would say every time somebody come in, I'm like, we're different. Tell us what you need, please, and we will do anything we can to try to meet that need. So I would have to believe for that's probably the first time a lot of these people have ever heard that. Yeah. From somebody who they're just expecting to blast me again, yep. crush me again, you know, punish me again, and now these people of authority are saying, How can we help you? Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, I didn't wear a dress, a, a robe. I'd sit on a, a stool. I would let, I'd freak my security out the first time I get new security because I'm like, okay, time for court. And I'm opening the door and shaking everybody's hand. Um, and, and so you're making an invite. Bessel van der Kolk, he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. If you want to learn about trauma in this world, that's the book. He says people don't grow unless they're safe, Right. And unless you create an environment where I can, I can assure you safety and respect and dignity and listening, you're not going to grow. You're going to be in defensive mode. You're going to be, you're going to be resisting, and you don't grow. Um, so we built a system where people are treated with dignity, respect, safety, and actually love. And then we give them a ton of tools to try to solve what's got to be solved and then we have some beautiful brilliant probation officers that keep them within the bounds right you know me i have an adult i have somebody who who adults and tries to keep me on track in my professional life because because i can get kind of wild right um we had good solid probation so it's accountability and it's treatment um and the whole idea is that um I can make you comply. I can literally stop Shannon from drinking coffee forever. I could bring a, you know, if I've got six years of prison hanging over your head, and I can stop it. I can make you comply. But that compliance only lasts as long as I got the hammer over you, right? Mm -hmm. What you want to do for treatment and issues and solving stuff is it's got to move from compliant to adherence, where it's your heart. This isn't Shannon doing this because Flirky's got the hammer. It's Shannon doing it because Shannon loves being a mom. She loves going to work. She loves being part of her community. And she knows that if she goes back to pick your thing, heroin, meth, alcohol, whatever, that's all going to fail. So it's become Shannon's life, Shannon's recovery. It ain't just because she's afraid of me and what I got to bring. So I'd have to believe there's a significant time commitment in oh, there. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, it's that, you know, just, I'm just curious if we can take a little side trail. I'm just curious on kind of some typical patterns you saw where it was like that first honeymoon period of time and then like when the light bulbs went on and like what did you see as a, a consistent pattern? Because I, I love to, I'm really curious about imagining in my head these people going from 
my life is done to wait. This judge and this team is offering help right. to then maybe believing it right. and then actually getting their feet under them. So I'm just imagining in that in my head. God, there's a hundred questions there. Let me tell you about my buddy Brent, who I was texting yesterday. Fast forward, he just bought a resort in Wyoming. And I'm going to go out there and elk hunt and, and trout fish. And he's been in my house a bunch of times. Um, I know his wife. I know his kid. Um, Brent came to us and he was, the, the guidelines said, I must send him to prison. And I forget, he had like maybe 110 months of prison. Um, Brent had at least two felony DWIs back in the day. Um, and we were convinced, he was the first guy that we took that it said we're supposed to send to prison. And I've already told you the research shows those are our best performers, starting hmm. with him. But I brought him in. I'm like, dude, here's the deal. This is a big, this is a big ass. There's a lot to work, a lot to do. And he's like, oh, I love it, I love it, I love it. And um, three or four months later, Brent came to us and he said, you know, I've been on probation five, six, seven times. Brent has spent untold months in county jail and all that. And he said, you know, I watched you guys because I was able to beat probation every other time. I could drink through probation. I could switch to this. I could do that. And I just watched y'all. And I realized I wasn't going to beat you. So, and then he said, so literally I had a conversation with myself. Do you want to go to prison and lose everything or do you want to work this damn thing and see if you can live it? Um, and that, that conversation was, my gosh, probably 12 years ago. Um, he, works for a, he, he works for a major construction company here. He's got a beautiful wife, beautiful life. Literally just bought a resort in Wyoming. Um, but we saw that pattern a lot. And, and one of the things in, in drug courts and traditional kind of over-the-top power and control judge work is, you got to be honest with me. Um, and we say, well, honesty should start day one. And I'm like, bullshit. Um, they don't got to be honest with me till I've proven myself trustworthy. Um, you don't have to be honest in this space until you understand that it's a safe place and that honesty won't be punished, right? We have one mm -hmm. kid who's now in my men's group. We do a, a, a fire uh, every week or every, once a month and um, do, a, do a coffee men's group. And when I say kid, he's in his mid-30s, you know that. Um, but he came in and he was honest with our probation officers on an issue. And our probation officers reported it to treatment like they should, because that's an opportunity to work through. And, you know, it's this back and forth of nothing's perfect, dude. Relapse is expected, up and downs, blah, blah, blah. And the treatment provider kicked him out. And they kicked him out in a way that um, he could have died. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, I st so I saw Pat that next day, that next week. We fixed it, we got him some medication. Um, we ultimately, I brought that treatment provider in from the cities um, and I said, you will never do this to a human being again. And I don't think they will. Um, but I saw him that next Friday and I grabbed him by his jacket. I said, I'm sorry. 
because um, we did you wrong. You were, you were honest with us. You were truthful with us. You relied on us. And it got you, it got you um, whacked from the treatment provider. Um, and that conversation was five years ago. And now I'm, I've got coffee with him on a couple of Fridays. And he's part of my men's group. And he's alive. And we spent, we spent months worried about him, just like a lot of our people worried on a, on a constant basis that they'd wind up dead. Um, so you're not, you're not all that worried about dumb behavior. You're really trying to get to the bottom of what brings them there. And if you can, if you can help them solve the issues that are, that are driving them over the edge. Nobody wakes up and says, man, I'd really love to be a meth addict. Or, God, I'd really love to be a heroin addict. That looks awesome, right? There are things that go on in a person's life. 80% of the people who use any substance don't have problems with it. It's not a, oops, the substance is the problem kind of thing. Um, it can be for some people. I've met people, first time they use heroin, they're done. They're just done. Um, coffee's the most, caffeine's the most addictive substance we know. Four uses of caffeine and you are starting to develop habitual behavior around caffeine. Caffeine is the most addictive substance we know, period. Um, but what you're trying to do is work with people to keep them alive so that then they can start to feel, oh, it's really cool to be a brother. It's really cool to see my parents and hang with my parents. It's really cool to be a mom. It's really cool to work. It's really cool to go to school. It's really cool to have a job. It's kind of cool to have a judge say, I'm proud of you. I mean, I, we had people all the time say, you know, you people are the first people who, who said they were proud of me. I had a 30-some, he's also in my group, 30-some-year-old <laughs> guy he comes in and he says to our treatment provider when he's graduating, he says, you know, you were the first person who ever listened to me. He's 30-some years old. Young, no, sorry. He was 28. Coming into the system, been in the system forever, gone through courts, gone through everywhere, had treatment. He said, Julie, you were the first person who ever listened to me. Um, and we designed a treatment program around what, what he said and what he needed as opposed to, oh, here, this one size fits all. Do this, do this, do this. And if it fails, it's your fault. I forget what the question was, but that's my answer. No, that's perfect. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to this, and I'm, I'm, because I'm very unfamiliar with the system. Yeah, yeah. As most people are. So getting clued into what people, you know, experience in, you know, the system and how it's operating, you're talking about it like it's just so natural and normal and... Um, I think that's kind of a big deal because like if we have family, friends, whatever, that all of a sudden we find in court, I remember walking to the court one time, you know, and just be like, it's just so scary and overwhelming. Yeah. And you're talking like it, like, well, kind of everybody's going to be there at one point, you know, basically, <laughs> you know, and you know, I just grew up very foreign to me, yeah. Yeah. but I love that you're, the way you're discussing it is just kind of like, Hey, we all have bumps in the road. And the goal here is to say, how do you move forward and what do you do? So it's really... turned off. Yeah. Let me say, let me put one thing in though. I spent spent a lot of time studying and learning 
how to be trauma-informed. And those words have meaning that we probably can't dig very deep into, but, but there are ways that you treat people with dignity and respect and safety that matter. And if you don't do them, people are activated. And what you're feeling when you go into a courtroom is they are very activating spaces. They're built from a power angle. Everybody looked at me. When people would meet me on the street, they'd say, dude, I thought you were seven foot tall. Because, you, you know, I'm up on that bench. I'm looking down on everybody. I'm wearing the, the black robe during when we're having formal court. It's all built kind of from this power and control weird. Um, so not every courtroom is a safe courtroom. Um, not every judge is a safe judge. Not every probation officer is a safe person. Um, there are people in the system who are punitive as hell. And there are people in the system that get a lot of joy out of jacking people up, fighting with them, and treating them badly. Just the yeah. system is designed as punitive. And that's I think been, this, yeah. I mean, that's been brought clearly to the forefront. Yeah. And, you know, and America and, is, we are the most punitive, bar none. We have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the incarcerated population. We believe in punishing people as the way to solve issues. Yeah. And it don't work. Right. You know if you face a big-ass punishment, the odds that it fixes your childhood trauma or fixes your homelessness or fixes your mental illness or, you know, make the list. Oh, is a cage going to do that? No, cage makes it worse. My question is, so you created, from what I can tell, you created a culture for your courtroom. Yes. And you created this program. And anytime you bring something new to the table I feel like there would be resistance to that from some of those individuals that you just mentioned the people that wanted to punish what kind of kickback did you see while creating this and how did did those non-believers come around yeah that's a fantastic question Um, so yeah I started a DWI court started a safe babies court to focus on kids from birth or pre-birth to three, started a domestic violence court, started a screening and brief intervention court. I did, I'm, I'm kind of a creator, right? <laughs> um, but you saw the model that worked and now you're just saying, here's the different areas that need yeah, it. Yeah, and then so. applied elsewhere. So there was initial, there was initial press back. What I, what I had kind of in my favor was that, um, I had been in the county attorney's office. I'd worked there. I know them. Um, I had represented the sheriff's office. So Sheriff Lippman was one of my dearest friends. Um, I knew all of the police department. I trained with them. I did um, simunitions training with them. I knew the public defenders. Fred Friedman is a dear friend. We travel together. So I knew everybody, right? I had connection with people, and I think that helped because then they can go with you a little bit, right? It's like, well, he's kind of crazy, but maybe we can dance with him. Um, and then I, then you do it right. You got to do it right. You've got to do it right, and you can do it wrong. There are drug courts in America that hurt people, period, um, and they should be stopped. Um, and then what happens is people see it. I, I had... Um, uh, Mark Baker, he wouldn't mind me saying this, uh, State Patrol, uh, uh, big shot, who was on our team, um, 
one of the sweetest men I've ever known. Just an awesome guy. But he came to me when he was retiring. He had joined our team. He had been state patrol for a bunch of years. Really thoughtful guy. And he came in his last day. Um, and he said, hey, can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah, come on, let's talk. And we go into my office and um, he says, he starts crying. Um, and he says, you know, this has been the best experience of my law enforcement career. Seeing these people get their lives back. I wish I'd have done it when I started because it would have informed everything I do and how I carry myself. And, and Mark's a guy you'd bet your life on. He's a capable, thoughtful, kind, awesome man. Um, but even he said, this changed my life and I wish I'd have been younger when it changed. Um, and what it is, I, I think fundamentally what it is, is our culture is so good at us and them. Mm-hmm. Our culture is so good at saying, here's me and mine, and you all are the fucking enemies. And it's real easy to throw folks in the criminal bracket, folks in the mental illness bracket, folks in the substance abuse bracket into that them category. And I think fundamentally what we were really doing was we were, we were erasing that line. So it was just all us. Because the minute we throw anybody into the them category, it makes us feel better, makes us right. feel safe. Because right. it goes back to, like, how do we protect ourselves? Right. And I do a ton of thinking. I train with a buddy on, um, he's, a, he's a forensic psychologist, and we train a lot on the neurobiology of trauma. And then, so he does that. He's the science guy. I'm a history major with a big mouth. Um, <laughs> And then we trained systems on how to be trauma-informed. But, but what we talk a lot about is we think of um, flee, defend, right? If you see a bear in the woods, you, first you look, you're assessing, and next you figure, how the heck can I get out of there? I'm going to flee. You actually don't think, I'm going to fight that bear. That's, that's wrong. That's, um, it's a flee cascade. So assess and then flee and only if you have to are you going to fight, right? So we always think of that, oh, that's what stress is. It's a bear. It's chasing us. The other piece of it is threat to status. Back in the day when we were gathered around the campfire and there were scary noises in the bush, if I said, okay, Shannon, we're going to throw you out of the group. You're going into the bush. So you, you lost your status with the in-group. You die. Even without the scary noises in the, in the fire, if you are out of the group and we're a little tribe and we're trying to scrape by and live ongoing, I'm talking about brain development back in the day, the threat of being knocked out of the group or kicked out of the group is the most scary threat you can get. Threat to status activates that same flee, defend. It's not the bear, it's the you don't belong. You are in the wrong place. You are not with us. And all of your defense circuitry is activated. So you're talking to every teenager on the planet right, right now. Right, right, right. And think of that. And yeah. we think adults, you know, we're like, oh, that's a teenage thing. Uh-uh-uh. It's totally, yeah. yeah. You know? I talked to a judge once out of Kentucky, um, and, and he was talking about the collapse of the coal industry. And he said, you know, all our people have lost everything. 
And then, you know, along comes opioids and the opioid epidemic. And he said, you know, when you're losing everything or have lost everything, you're angry and scared, period. Um, and that's exactly, that's exactly what teenagers do there. I'm in, you're out. I'm in, you're out. And if you're out, it's, it's massive stress to your system. Yeah, and we, yeah. It, so we erase that line between us and them. We erase it. And, you know, now that I'm not a judge, I can have a men's group, and literally three or four of the folks in my men's group are former clients, and I love those guys. So let's talk about that, because, I mean, you're wearing a Rambler shirt, and I cannot tell you how many people, they're like, oh, yeah, I knew judge because... I was forced to know judge, right. you know, and like, but, but like now we're friends again. And, and you've just said it probably five times since we've been talking already, like this good friend of mine, I'm yeah. going hunting, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But you met them, yeah. you know, through unsavory circumstances. Uh, I just find that amazing. So That's how, cool. how did you go about saying I'm going to take on a next phase in my life now? Um, because you were doing amazing things. Mm-hmm you know, really making changes in a lot of people's lives. So um, when I heard that you were stepping down and moving on to what you're doing, in yeah. one sense, it didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. But it was just kind of like my heart grieved for people who now weren't going to have the benefit of you presiding over their cases. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I have grieved the same thing. Um, so I, I started when I was 39. I did it for almost 17 years, loved it, loved the engagement, loved the, the building and the connection. A lot of it I didn't like either. Um, I'm not a huge fan of kind of the big system. Um, I, I, I find most of the system can be awful dehumanizing. Um, and so I felt like I had done, I had done in the system about all I could do. I mean, I kept building stuff. I was doing new stuff, but but there was a lot of um, beautiful repeat, right? Um, and I also knew I was not going to do that job till I was seventy. The, you know, I've watched, and God bless them, um, but I ain't going to be that guy because um, you pay a hell of a cost. Um, even doing the beautiful work I did with the vicarious trauma and all this stuff coming through, it impacts you. Um, so I'd been watching for three or four years and thinking about consulting and training and I got a big mouth and I can make money training and you know people pay me to go blah 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 Um, and then I was out with a buddy Dan Liu, chief public defender and he started talking about this foundation I'm like I wasn't even listening right I'm drinking my beer and Dan's talking and um, he says yeah we're looking for a leader um what we do is we invest in the community and we want to make a difference. And we've done a lot of really cool work, but we'd like to move to more. And we'd like to focus on social justice. Um, and then he squints at me, he's like, he says, we need a visionary who can lead, who knows the systems, who's really good at kind of bringing people together and working as, as teams. Um, and he squints, he looks at me, he's like, that's you. <laughs> what? Dude, I was just drinking beer. I didn't even... Uh, <laughs> but there's a, 
I heard a I heard a Mohican elder speak years ago named Don Coyhis, and this story has become this is my fire. Um, I'm you know the Chinese water elements water wind fire. I'm fire. Um, I've always been fire. I always will be fire. But this is my fire. Um, and I asked Don afterwards, can I share this story? Because I'm not going to steal your stuff. I, and he gave me permission. He sent me some slides. He's like, you go. Um, Don Coyas founded the Wellbriety Movement in Indian country. Um, he's got a book called The Red Road to Sobriety. Um, but he tells a story about the three sisters. Um, there are three sisters who come to, and you'll hear these themes through everything I've said already. There are three sisters who come to a river and in the river, there are babies drowning. And the first sister jumps in and starts pulling kids out and, and making, she's saving kids, she's saving lives, um, but making very little progress because of the overwhelm, because of the numbers. And the second sister thinks, geez, if I could teach some kids to swim, then they could be helpers and we would multiply our efforts. So second sister jumps in and she does that and they're starting to save more kids, but they're still overwhelmed. They both look at third sister who's standing along the river and says, get in, get in. How can you stand there? Don't you care? And she turned and ran away. She was running upstream to figure out who was putting babies in the water in the first place. And Don says... You know, we can heal a tree, um, but if we aren't planting and raising trees in good soil, good water, and good air, we're just going to keep trying to heal broken trees. And the board said to me, why, should, why would you come do this? Why would you leave? You know, the judge thing is perceived as one of the best jobs on the planet, right? Um, why would you come do this? And I said, well, I've done sister one in my courtroom. I've done sister two in the training I've done all around the country and a little bit around the world. But I want to do sister three. And if you want to do sister three, I'll do it with you and I will give you everything I have. If you don't want to do sister three, I'm not your guy. Um, so that's my fire. That's, the Japanese have a term ikagai which is why do you get up? What is it that gets you up in the morning? You know, Matt said, I, I, um, you know, I was getting up and not wanting to do what I was doing. Um, my guy is to get up. And we'll do first, the community foundation does really good first sister. We do second sister. And we're going to do more third sister. Um, I want to figure out how to raise boys and girls in our communities who don't suffer adverse childhood experiences at a four times rate or an eight times rate or whatever. Um, and that is a lot to say and think about. Kevin Anderson, um, the second who runs Family Freedom, has become a friend. And we were talking and he's like, dude, you know, and Kevin's six six big guy. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, dude, I want to work my way out of a job. I'm like, mm. I'll, I'll run with you. Because mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a phrase in, in this industry, um, uh, the um, human services industrial complex, where we just continue to do it again and again and again and again and again and wonder why it's always the same. Um, so 
powerful. I want to be third sister. That's what I want to do. And, you know, we got this big foundation with a bunch of beautiful people who are giving money to try to make a difference. What an opportunity, right? Um, I don't have a lot of people fighting me now about the, you know, they're like, what should we do? Where can we go? What do you want? You know, when you're the dude giving away money, ain't nobody fighting you that hard, you know? Right. So... So this is an interesting um, segue into the first time I met you. So I've heard about, you know, Judge oh, Sean yeah, Flurkey. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and so friends who have adopted kids, they're like, oh, he was my presiding judge yeah. or whatever. So I'm like, okay, I know this Sean, you know, Flurkey guy and understand him as a good guy, but don't really know him, you know, never met him face to face. And then a little over a year ago, this little thing happens called the pandemic. Right. I'm in the food and beverage. March bever- of last yeah, year, March right? of last year. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, the hammer comes down, we're shut down. We're kind of yeah, at the tail end. Right. Yeah, we're at the tail end of spring. And I'm like going, oh my gosh, nobody can come in. The first thing in my head is I got to get mobile. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm brick and mortar. I got to get mobile somehow. So I call right. this guy, Johnny Resnick, that I met through somebody else. And I'm like, the hey, rambler. The rambler. So I'm like, hey, Johnny, remember me? He's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, where's your truck? Get your truck out. In I March. Said, yeah, in right, March. in March. Yeah. I know, I'm like... Bring some shovels, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I could hear him shaking his head. Right. Under like, Who is um, this I know. woman? Yeah. How do I get rid of her? Because I'm like, I have no... I, your food, I'm basically coffee and whatever. Um, I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work, but I just know I need to be mobile. You have mobile wheels. Can we do something? <laughs> um, so we met up and just chatted, and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I think I can probably get it out of storage. Let's, I don't know, we'll figure something out. And then within three, four days, he says, hey, I talked to my, my buddy, Sean. Yeah. You know, let's, let's meet. I'm like, sure. So let me, let, can I put yeah. in? Yeah. So Johnny and I are meeting at uh, Great Harvest downtown, also coffee. Coffee is my theme. I've never done anything <laughs> worthwhile that didn't start over a cup of coffee with there somebody. Um and it's early, it's March, he's closed, you're closed, and we're like just, just hanging out. We, we have coffee all the time. And Johnny says, you know, I'd really like to... What Johnny didn't say was, how do I help myself? What Johnny said was, I would really like to do something for those frontline workers, mm-hmm. uh, medical workers. And we started talking, and we're like... Yeah. You know, what about delivering food to, you know, the folks, right? Um, and so then he calls you or he, he calls you back. Right, because the simultaneously what was happening was, um, one, I got to get mobile. But two, the reason why I got to get mobile is because we were all told, go work from home, right? The governor said, you know, if you can work from home, go work from home. Well... My brother's a police officer. My sister-in-law is a nurse. I mean, my whole family can't work from home. Right. Because they're just these frontline workers. And we didn't know what the pandemic was at first. All we heard was, like, people were dying in the streets in these other countries. It's coming here. It just felt like this impeding army was going to show up at some point. But we didn't know what it was or what it was going to look like. And I have all these family that can't work from home, you know. So we had just through social media just said, hey, if you buy these uh, online gift cards, we'll just use it to then go give coffee and whatever. Um, so I'm like, you know, John, you got a truck. Let's go do whatever. So we were kind of doing this, not super organized, but it was kind of coming together. You guys had a conversation. I'm like, all right, let's meet. So we meet in this conference room that we're in right now. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yeah. 
so we walked in here and, you know, hey, Me Sean. and Brianna, right? Yep, yep. yep. I'm like, hey, Judge, nice to meet you. And you introduce Bri as your adult. Yep, my, this is my adult. <laughs> this is my if adult. If anything happens, it'll be because Bri gets it. <laughs> and I was like, you're an adult. And I learned very quickly what that meant. Right. And then I said, how do I get me one of them? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be me. You got to be me. <laughs> you, yep. You've threatened to take Bri, and I've threatened to kill you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That won't happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Brie is amazing. She's the bomb. She is the bomb. So the four of us sat here and we just said, how do we support these people? You know, Johnny, you can do box lunches. I can do bakery. We can do coffee. And we just kind of created a little bit of a structure. And the idea was, and I remember you saying, you know, people want something to believe in. They want something to fight for. So we're going to create the bucket. Yeah. We're going to create a really clear bucket that then people can put stuff in. Yeah. And that's what we did. So within 24 hours, we launched... Um, look out for the helpers. Look out for the which helpers. Is the, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a riff on the Mr. Rogers quote. So Bree yep. and I were talking, and I don't even know how Mr. Rogers came up, but he mm-hmm. says, you know, my mom said when trouble came, um, there will be helpers. Um, and... We thought, well, maybe we can look out for those helpers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we created it. Bree, Bree worked it up. We did a GoFundMe. What did we raise? 20000 bucks in a weekend? Yeah. Within almost 48 hours, we'd, we'd raised our 10000 That was our first goal because we thought 10000 okay. will get us a good chunk. Yeah. And um, we created a very systematic thing where three times a week, you know, two, three times a day for two, three times a week, just going to all the different hospitals and creating those contacts. And we just had a real nice slick system. Um, and then we realized that this was extending. Mm-hmm. So we kind of did another little, hey, guys, we're going to do another one. So we ended up with $20,000. And it was incredible to see people's responses. And we would get thank yous all the time from mm-hmm. the you know hospital workers. And we went to some treatment centers. Yeah, yeah we yep. went to um, some uh, skilled nursing facilities. We'd, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fire departments, pharmacies, pharmacy. Yep. Yep, well, please. and we. So this came. One of the one of the things for me here was um, when you're overwhelmed. You know, everybody was overwhelmed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, neuroscientists say we need certainty on duration, path, and outcome. That's what keeps humans kind of stasis. We had no certainty on duration, path, or outcome. We were, mm-hmm. uh, and and we also know that. Um, when you have no agency, it leads to overwhelm. And I thought, I was thinking early March, where can I have some agency? Where can I do something? Mm-hmm. And so that was part of our conversation, Johnny and I, and then the four of us, this is something we can do. And we knew early on that we weren't going to be able to do it forever. And I don't even know how we knew that. Well, we they knew had it said with the, sunset. They said, well, the surge is coming. or they, I mean, there was literally things were changing daily and weekly. Yeah. And um, it was amazing how it just kind of organically worked out that when we did that last delivery, because we just said, you know what, we're just going to spend all this money. Yep, yep. We're going to just... Yeah, and that was you. You're like, Mm -hmm. let's spend it. Let's go. And I'm like, okay. Because I thought, well, geez, do we parse it out over 12 weeks? Because we think it's going to, you know, what what foolish. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at where we are now. Yeah, a year later. Yeah. But what we also talked about, which I think happened was this was early days, and we were one of the first to do some little kind of thing like that that we know of, mm-hmm. just just our little group. Say our, the 20 people we knew, we were maybe the first, you know, just mm-hmm. really small. I'm not trying to be boastful about this, but, but the idea that we talked about again and again is let's get out there, let's say we love you to these folks through real solid food and coffee. You know, what says I love you more than... 
but also let's get the idea out there so that other people will pick up on the idea and mm-hmm. steal the idea and multiply the idea. And that, to me, looking back, I still see, like on, on St. Luke's Foundation and elsewhere, these people are bringing them stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the, the people respond. And we did that. I run the Duluth Street Art Initiative, and we took art to Essentia, um, some art that we put out front. We took art to St. Luke's. Um, to say thank you to, to frontline folk and helpers. And I loved that we just did this little thing and it came to an end and then everybody's, the whole culture was pitching in at the same time. Yeah. So what did, what did that mean to you when you, you know, we kind of came together, we had this idea, whatever, and as it was going, like, just think back on that, you know, whatever, 10 weeks, and I'm sure you had a lot of conversations with your kids and your wife, and um, what was going through your head during that time? Well, you remember that, like you said, it was a dark time. You know, 40% of my clients lost their jobs on that one day, and three of my kids lost their jobs on the same day, the same day you lost your job. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was all this, all this darkness and uncertainty and what's going to happen. Um, but then we had this thing we could do, mm-hmm. and we were doing it together. Doing it alone would have been something, but nowhere near as much fun, right? So there's the, back to gathered around the fire together. Um, we are tribal people, which can be really ugly, but it can be really beautiful too. Um, when you find your little tribe and you're working on something that has value in your sand of the universe, we're going to act in love and kindness and care for other people, regardless of what you throw at us. Um, that, to me, that helped me get through those first several months. I always, you know, you, if you volunteer, we go up to the vineyard and, and help with the uh, food shelf maybe once a month or something. They like us because we show up. There's five or six of us. My boys are strong. We get shit done, you know. Um, and I always work the front. I'm out, outside talking with people because, one, I'm going to know some of them, and two, I just love that. But I go to the food shelf and we give away second harvest food which Mm -hmm. is beautiful shout out to second harvest and all they're doing Mm -hmm. um and i get way more out of it than the groceries i put in somebody's car i just do and i don't do it for what i get i honestly don't i do it because i see a need and that's something we can be part of and help people in in real need but i know that when i walk away i actually received more than the, than the person with three or four boxes of groceries. And I don't even understand the, the spirit or the magic or the, or the holiness of that. Um, but I think that's the way I see like our work now is it's generous community. The, everybody brings something, right? Some dude, I know dudes who've plunked down half a million damn dollars on something just like that. Um, but when you show up, you know, Stefan's going to bring his dad's fried chicken recipe, and that's holy. Somebody's going to bring their, their four-year-old who's going to sing and dance, and that's holy. Somebody's going to bring gifts for the elders. Somebody's going to... I think about it in terms of generous community. Not just the giver, not just the receiver, but it's this generous community that somehow gives love and life into the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I want to be about. 
is that that connected, generous community. I was in the with community. Like, where do you see our community going? If it wasn't for the pandemic, do you think we would be as strong as we are now? Or, and now that the pandemic, let's say it's close to the end, do you feel like we're still going to be close-knit as we are? Or how can we not fade apart? So, I th- man, that's a big question. I think fundamentally it will depend on our choosing. It will depend on what each of us decides to do in our sphere of connected influence. Um, and if you decide to be a keyboard warrior and bitch and scream at somebody else, that's what you're sowing into the universe, right? Um, I forget who said it. It might have been Churchill who said, never waste a good crisis. Um, and I told my kids early on, you pay attention to this pandemic because they're going to be talking about this as long as human history has recordings, right? Mm-hmm. It's a big fucking deal. Um, never waste a good crisis means that we are at a pivot point right now. There's been horrible, horrible stuff coming out of this pandemic. 100,000 restaurants have shut down. What do they say now? 900 some thousand Americans dead. India is getting decimated. We're fighting over whether we should give people vaccines. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's all about our choosing um, and, and whether we will choose to act in kindness and love and compassion and connection or whether we will continue to feed this us versus them dichotomy. That um, if Shannon and I don't agree politically, she is my, my mortal enemy and her existence is intolerable for me. Really? And, and there are people who think that way, right? Mm-hmm. We got to destroy those enemies. And, they, and back to the Kentucky thing. People who are scared of losing stuff, who have lost stuff, their status is threatened and they're angry and scared. And when you're angry and scared, you're easily led. You're easily lied to. You're easily pulled one direction or another and often to extremes because you're activated. That low part of your brain that says, holy hell, that's a bear. I need to fight or run is always going. And so you get a keyboard wire who says this. You're like, oh, that's got to be right. I'm going that way. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think the question is, how are we going to live today in a way that makes our community better? I think the jury's totally out on what's going to happen and I, I if good people sit it out if good people um, just keyboard warrior it we're in deep trouble yeah well when this whole thing start when the pandemic started and we were having conversations and you know school is like okay two weeks be home for two weeks and yeah you know so I'm thinking two three months and I remember you saying no this is going to be a year 18 months two years and I remember thinking no yeah no way and then shortly into it I'm like oh yeah like yeah. this is a long term thing and the effects of that on humanity you know so I want to yeah, let me throw an idea out there too mm-hmm. uh, we we we've talked a lot about trauma mm-hmm. and it's this idea that um, a lot of folks in, in my circle and who I've helped um, have been broken by their trauma. Not broken. In, in, they are down and they need healing. There's another idea that goes back to Churchill a little bit. Post-traumatic growth. Trauma doesn't 
necessarily kill you. For instance, one of my favorite images when I teach is, um, you guys remember the biosphere too? You guys don't. You too. Do you remember that? You remember that? You're looking at me because yeah, I'm the oldest were, one here. So they, they made this this big greenhouse in the middle of the desert and humans went in there to live and see what it would be like and, and it was closed off space and trees didn't trees, grow yeah. in they the biosphere. They fell down. They actually yeah. fell down. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason is trees need wind and wind is stress. Wind stretches you and pulls you and takes you... Wind challenges you, and that's how you get stronger. So the way to view this thing is let's, let's use it to get stronger. Let's be more connected. Let's be more local. Let's be, you know, I, post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. um, is, is a power. Think of going to the weight room. That is trauma. Trauma intended to trigger growth. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. Sorry, I interrupted. How old no. are you anyway? Let's talk about that. It was just my birthday, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Dang it. I was born, I was born in 1974. Wow. Wow. Those were some rough times. I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> my but first I, car was born in 1972. My first car was born. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a used. Lots used. Nice. Wow. I am loving to learn about... Sean Flurkey, who's not Judge Sean Flurkey right? now. I love yeah. getting rid of that. Um, just being Sean. It must be. It must be a happy, sad thing, though. It is, and and I'm trying to figure out. So yeah, I start a men's group. You know, it started with Johnny and I having coffee, just like everything yeah. good in my life does. Um, and I realized, looking back on it, that I I couldn't have done that in the past, and it's and the rules prohibited it. That's clear, um, but. But moreover, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth. Mm. Um, and, and so it's a, and trauma is my thing, right? It's called vicarious trauma. As we hear stories, as we see people dying, as we are, are impacted by the stories of other people's sadness, we take that on board. And we've got to find ways to be resilient and vibrant and renewed despite that. Um, I and, think of that with our police officers oh, right now. Oh, for sure, right? For sure. Oh God! You want to talk fixing, fixing that right now? How many hours you got? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's not working for anybody. Well, right? right. And there's so many good law enforcement yeah, out yeah. there. Yeah. And that vicarious trauma of being like, I'm part of a system. Yeah. That I've committed my life to because I love and help and I want to, you know. But yet there is here, and just how are we walking through that? Yeah. I mean, it's just really hard. Yeah. So I think you know you can have an impact on that. I'm fixing to. Yeah. I'm actually You're fixing, fixing too. I've, I've had people from both sides approach me and say, I'm like, yeah, I'll be part of that conversation. I ain't going to lead it. I'm a privileged white guy, um, but I'd be glad to be part of holding space for people. Awesome. I got a couple bonus questions. Right. <laughs> so really, really early on, you had said that you love the little guy and you mm-hmm. hate Injustice. Mm-hmm. That was at a at a young age. You said that you knew that. Yeah. Was there something that triggered that, or what do you think? Why do you gravitate towards? Are you the oldest child? The I am the oldest child. Um. Yeah, I don't. I I can't think of something in my. I just have always been enraged by 
the bigger guy picking on the little guy or the person in power picking on the person without power. And I, I honestly, back to it, that can be our system sometime, right? I mean, that can right. be, you know, if somebody doesn't have access and voice and all that, you, you talk about school systems or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I, it, it's in me. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, it's just in me. Sure. And then did you ever find boundaries? You said early on, I didn't have any boundaries. <laughs> I, was <up> at, <laughs> I was up at 1 a.m. I was going to work. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> where, where are you at today? Sarah? Sweet. All right. Sweet. Jeez. <laughs> FaceTime her. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. So, so when Brie came into my life to adult for me. So real quick, who's Brie? Brianna is my old court reporter, uh, combat Marine veteran. Um, Probably a hundred pounds soaking yeah, wet. Yeah, hundred pounds soaking wet. Mm-hmm. Just, um, we, so one of the things, one of my issues is that I say yes way too much. Um, and so I'm traveling all over the place. I literally, before COVID, was using 70 to 75% of my vacation to travel around and teach. And I make money and I piss it away, right? COVID asked me, why were you doing that? What was that about? And was that healthy? So I'm finding boundaries there. I'm saying no to a bunch of stuff. Um, I bet I say no to something at least once a week, maybe twice, maybe three. And that's been hard, and it's been good. Um, but I'm still a work in progress because sure. I'm just I'm I'm kind of all in. I'm a binary, either I'm doing it or I'm not, and so that bites. Um, but COVID's been a good teacher. Um, it actually has, and I don't mean to be flip about what COVID has cost people, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about what is it that turns your crank, little man, um, and I've done. Most of my vacation set out is all about canoeing, backpacking, fishing, being with my family, being with my friends. I don't have a single travel set this year that involves me going out and getting paid to to shoot my mouth off. And that's on purpose. Never waste a good crisis. When we were doing some deliveries, um, some late night deliveries, do you remember when we were driving down Central Entrance and it was was a Saturday night? Mm Mm-hmm. Nothing. It was a ghost town. Yeah, right. And we were just like, man, look at this. There's just how eerie it was. And I remember the conversation being like, so, hey, Judge, do you feel like you just kind of gotten like a crash course in introspection and learning who you are over the last? And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. I mean, just the pandemic had a, a way to create this trauma, these existential crisis. And it was interesting that we are coming you know, towards the other side of this. And then all of a sudden, Judge Flurkey is now head of this foundation. Right. And I remember you saying also, you just need something to fight for. Mm-hmm. So what do you see, you know, what's your dream and what's your hope? Um, and maybe it can be a macro or whatever that you're hoping the next while, the season, two years, five years, like what's in you and what do you really want to see coming out? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm in this wonderful spot where I'm, in, I'm now in charge of organizing a team of 10 or 11 folks and a board of 12 or 13 folks and then an organization with literally $97 million in the bank um, endowed. You spend part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
there are, there are going to be three themes that are coming to my mind and they're coming out of my heart. Um, one is, we'll call it opportunity rising. That's a, that's a word, that's a, that's a thing within our house. And it's going to be about trying to remove barriers for folk and find bridges for folk with folk who haven't had it. Right, so it's going to be how do we how do we go upstream and change outcomes for little boys and girls? Um, two is going to be equity. Um, it's clear that, and I don't have to preach to anybody or tell anybody this. It's clear that we have haves and have-nots, and a lot of it falls along racial lines. A lot of it falls on you know able-bodied versus disability a lot of it falls on where your zip code is and and who your dad is and who your dad isn't and and we will do work there in equity um and then the other thing we do well at the foundation and we will continue to do well um is helping people through disaster um and the disaster of covid and you know you read research on what climate change might do um that's not a it's not a line of business that's going to close down in a couple of months because we've got vaccines out there. There's always people hurting in our community. So I, I think, and I don't know, maybe those are the three sisters. Maybe? I don't know. Um, but that, that's, that's what I see is now I'm, uh, I get to be part of guiding an organization that way um, and, and calling our community to be the beautiful community that it really is. Um, I have I've been so blessed to see what people give and how they care. Um, the, uh, one of the stories I share, and it's not even our story, it's from uh, Lutheran Social Services. They're doing Bethany Crisis Shelter. Uh, does great work. They were trying to pitch, and it's one of our guys and some buddies showed up there, and they were trying to pitch to fix this old crappy building up. And one of the guys said to her, um, Catherine, who runs the, the work, you want me to give money to fix this place up? It was built in like the 20s, it's fallen down. It's, she's like, yes sir, we do. <laughs> He's like, I won't give you a penny for that. And then he says, but if you want to tear it down and build a new one that's even better, I'll give you a lot of money. Mm. And I thought, I love that. I'll go with that guy anywhere. Um, so that's, we're going to be calling our community to be all of that. And it won't be have and have not. It won't be rich guys great, poor guy. It'll be generous community where we come together and we celebrate together. And what do you got to bring? What do you got to bring? How are you sharing? What do you got? And, and then let's, let's really dig in and do deep work here. What does that mean to you to know that you are the head coach and get to build that? It's been a little weird um, because I'm 56 and I'm moving into an area that I don't know, a system I don't know, people I don't know. Um, so my neural connections are being pounded um, to establish new neural connections, to have um, thoughtful mental furniture in order to understand. Because I can throw ideas at you, but if I don't understand, then I'm an idiot, right? Um, so it's taking a lot of energy and a lot of listening and a lot of learning, but I love it. Um, and I, I, 
I'm not yet effective. I'm making stuff happen. I'm getting there. It's going to take me a while to to grow into this. Um, but then I've got all these beautiful partners. Um, so I love it. I, I, you know me. I'm I'm visionary. I'm a maximizer. I'm an activator. I'm a challenger. Um, that's what I do. Um, on my own, I'm not. I'm not going to get everything done. I need a team, and so I've got this beautiful team um, who have somehow been dumb enough to trust me with the with the keys. You know, and, um, that's cool. I ikagai. What are you going to get up for? What are you going to do? I keep saying to to a couple of my uh, leads. They're both named Michelle. I'm going to change one to something else because I just. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you guys pick nicknames or I will change one of your names. I have the paperwork. Yeah. I know how to do it. I know how to do it. <laughs> like, okay, I'll be Wally. I'll be Mo. All right, good. <laughs> We're good. But I say to them, 10 years from now, we're sitting somewhere. We're having a glass of wine. What do we want to look back on and say, we were privileged to do that, right? What do you want to think about when you're going out? Um, and that's how I think. I build, I build the future. I see the future collaboratively. And then I, then I figure out how do we, how do we build to there. Um, pretty cool work. And I get paid. Yeah. Wow. All I can say is that since I've known you over a year now, there's not been a lot of You and Johnny and Bree, you know, and Julie. It's like, I've never been in a drug court or in the recovery community Mm -hmm. or I've never been in that. Um, But gosh, if if these are the type of humans that that produces, Mm -hmm. sign me up. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. And I'm like, those are the humans I want to be around. And I'm around, and like you know, you too. Oh, yeah. You're around like these high-powered people, and yeah. and there's some fun parts of that. But at the end of the day, yeah, those people that when you see them, you know, hey sunshine, <laughs> good to see you, man. I miss you. I love you. Yeah. And I'm like, that is just what brings life to your soul and your heart. Yeah. Let me add two things. I tell everybody that. Um, I am from, and the people I love are from the island of misfit toys. Um, and these guys are maybe too young to get that. I mean, that's the reference that's that's fallen away. Um, we got it. Oh yeah. I heard a guy speak. I heard him on a radio interview, and he lost his son in the in the. He worked at the Sears in the towers, and he said, "You know, he didn't get a call from his son while the fire was happening. Some did, some didn't." Um, He said, but I was so very grateful that the last time I talked to my son, I said, I love you. As we were, I don't remember whether it was a phone call or 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 an in-person. He said, I was so grateful that the last words that I said to my son were, I love you. And so that's one of my practices now is to say that and say it again. And again, and again, and again, because I don't. I, I've, I'm planning to live till a hundred, but I don't know. So, 
say that to your people. You know, Bree, Johnny, every time I talk to those guys, it's like, and you know, our text between the four of us, it's always, I love you, I love you, I love you, you know, and I, I think we need a world where we say that. And that was like, people, a lot of people probably don't know my story, but you know, the, my um, enfoldment into that little group during that time, wow, it was like just life-saving, you know? Mm-hmm. It was life-saving. And, and, you know, Brie or ever like, man, you guys are just, you're like my family now. And I'm like, <laughs> you guys have no idea. Like, it was just that right group at that right time. And it will just forever be life-changing. Yeah, misfit toys. So can we end on a coffee story? Let me tell about my house burning down. Yep. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> so for those who do or do not know, um, Sean is a huge coffee oh fanatic to the point of even understanding roast profiles and all sorts of things. <laughs> right. I'm like, is it full city? She's like, what? Yeah. You don't know that? And Jeremiah's like, oh, yeah. So like, you know, right. they're talking over there. Um, so you're a, a huge, you know, coffee connoisseur. Right. Um, so yeah, tell us about your house. You have this beautiful house. Beautiful house. I'm going to back it 2.0. up. 2.0. I'm going to back it up a, a few months. Um, January 1, 2011, somebody broke into our house and came through the window, and we heard shattering. So I went downstairs. I've trained with law enforcement for 20 years, so I know what I'm doing. I get down there, and this guy is covered in blood and coming through our window. Um, he had been beat up. He was lost. It was freezing cold. He was in trouble. He was not trying to harm us. He didn't know he, he was coming into a judge's house. <laughs> so I stop him with my 45 and tactical light. I'm buck naked. <laughs> Cops come. I say that Sarah's like, they're coming. And I'm like, dude, they're going to come in really hard. Do not move because I'm a judge. And he bowses and he's like fuck and like 15 guys Jeff Casley just come flying in I'm yeah. like dude 10 months later we're lying in bed I had started roasting coffee I've been roasting coffee for years and I had started a roast late at night which I never did out in the garage I had a one pound Beamer roaster it was a nice roaster and I was supposed to pick my oldest kid up from a party so I thought well I'll do coffee that night and I forgot about it. And we're laying up in bed reading. And I hear stuff start shattering again. And I'm like, no, I know what to do. Because second time's way easier. Grab my 45, got my light. I'm even wearing clothes. <laughs> I even have clothes on <laughs> I'm, this time. I'm like, I'm like super solid. I'm literally, I'm literally chill when I get down to our garage door. And I'm about to go out there with my pistol and take care of whoever the fuck is in my house. <laughs> And I start to open that door, and it's warm, and there's smoke, and my garage is on fire. And I'm, I literally think, Shannon, I'm like, uh-oh, I have the wrong tools. <laughs> 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 and coffee burned our house. Yeah, it got up into the attic. They fought fire. Smoke and water through the whole house totally destroyed our house. So we spent the next seven months rebuilding our house. So, yeah, me and coffee go way, way, way back. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, so uh, what's going to be the name of your roast then? My, oh, so my future daughter-in-law said it should be dark and difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ironic because you don't I even don't like dark, dark roasts. But I am kind of dark. <laughs> Sean, thank you oh. so much for sharing your story. Um, your I feel faith. like we talked way too long. I'm sorry. No, I mean, the, no. mouth. No. <laughs> your your uh, faith no. in humanity, uh, very inspiring. Thank you for what you're doing. Your vision mm-hmm. is very inspiring. Um, if, for anybody that would maybe want to learn more or be involved in the foundation or help you guys out, what's the name of the foundation again, and how do they get in touch? Yeah. So it's the Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation. We're probably going to shorten that a little bit. Um, they can find us on the web. I'm on Twitter, Instagram as Sean Florkey. Um, I always tell people, if you come to Duluth, just start asking people. You'll find me within half an hour. You know, I've had people fly in and the cab driver's like, oh, yeah, I'm his cab driver. <laughs> They're like, really? No, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Marty, Marlin, come get me. You yeah. know, it's like, yeah, the, people can find me and, um, with any, and if we can help, we'd be glad to help people too. So, so you, is there a place for anybody to get involved? That's, if somebody just says, you know what, Sean, I don't even exactly know what you're doing, but I love your heart. I want to be on board. You can find a place for them. Yeah, we'll find something. Awesome. Um, and, and it, you know, we are, we are kind of big picture and we fund the people who then help the people more, which is a weird thing for me. Like I know, if, I know, I, I told my board, I'm way more likely to know felons than rich guys. You know that, right? Um, but we will find a way. Yeah, email me, email us, and yeah, the, or you know, second harvest. Go to vineyard and do food shelf. There's so many great things to do. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, my pleasure.